Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. This episode is part of the What the Fork DigiTalks by Ag Funder series that we've been hosting over the past few weeks via online webinars. Speaking with a range of industry experts, Ag Funder executives hope to help our investors and network to navigate the agri-food investment space during this time of crisis resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. This podcast is taken from one of the live recordings. Uh, hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the second of our uh, Ag Funder DigiTalk series. This week, we're coming from Asia. My name is Michael Dean. I'm a founding partner at AgFunder. We're an online investment platform for those of you who don't know. And today, we're looking at basically the impacts of COVID-19 and really what's been the impact across the supply chain into Asia. Asia, with its very, very diverse number of countries and uh, fragmented supply chain, has been particularly susceptible. So what we want today today is to um, really pull together this great panel that we've got and see, get their insights into the Asian agri-food ecosystem, give their views on the fallout, and maybe help us uh, identify some of the, the interesting technologies that uh, are emerging in the market now and some ideas that they have around uh, fixing the potential problems. So today we've got Suresh Sundar Rarajan. Suresh is Managing Director and Group Global Head of Corporate Services at OLM International. We have Anuj Maheshwari, Managing Director of Investments at Demasek. And uh, Matthew Kovac, Executive Director of Food Industry Asia, which is the regional, I suppose, lobby body for food and beverage industry in Asia. Is that a fair description, Matt? I guess, yeah. <laughs> we say advocacy, <laughs> not lobbying. Advocacy, sorry, advocacy. Fair, okay, thank you. So we'll just kick it off individually, guys. Anuj, Tomasic's one of the biggest investors globally in agri-food tech. What's the impact that you're seeing on, on your portfolio companies? I know you've got a couple like Impossible, DoorDash that probably are feeling pretty good about now about how things are going from, from a business perspective. What's the, the overall view that you're seeing from, from the Tomasic portfolio? Thanks, Michael. Good morning or good evening to all the participants from around the world. So look, COVID-19 started out as a healthcare crisis. We're still in a healthcare crisis. You know, it's now morphed into an economic crisis. And one of the things that we uh, are looking for and watching very carefully is that it doesn't morph now into a humanitarian crisis. So, you know, the food system has gotten two shocks, a demand shock and a supply shock as a result of this crisis. And like everybody, our portfolio has been affected as well. What's peculiar about the agri-food chain is that it really depends on which part of the value chain and which commodity you are in. There is no one broad brush answer that we see. Companies like DoorDash have benefited because of the increase in delivery. Uh, Certain food ingredient companies are benefiting as consumers are doing more grocery shopping. They're doing more do-it-yourself kind of food preparations. However, any business which depended on the food service is heavily affected. Impossible Foods, of course, had a big contract with Burger King, which is well known. Uh, sales of QSRs have gone down as well. And therefore, companies like those have been affected massively. If you look at the overall system perspective, we have not seen shocks are on the input side. Farmers are still buying inputs. The supply chain, by and large, is working and functioning. Obviously, at certain points, it's not. So in different commodities, companies have been affected as well. But by and large, if you look at our overall portfolio, it's doing a fairly good job of keeping its operations running. 
making sure the essential supplies are provided. Because yes, healthcare is the need of the hour, but food is needed every day, 24 hours a day. And our companies continue to be working hard to make sure that they're providing those essential supplies. And it's just on, on the impossible. We've seen from, particularly in the US, that there's been an increased plant-based proteins or alternative proteins in, in the supermarkets. Has Impossible been able to adjust its, its uh, supply chain to be able to package and redirect product to the supermarkets, or has it struggled in that regard? No, the, that's right. I think all the companies are pivoting as fast as they can to provide the right kind of SKUs for supermarkets as the consumer mm. has been changing the food habits. Impossible was lucky that it launched its grocery product sometime Q4 and Q3 last year in the United States, and that offtake has been quite good. And it continues to use that channel to sell its products. Yeah, fantastic. We might uh, touch back on, on, on those supply chain issues uh, a little bit later. Suresh, Oram is a, a massive global company. Your ingredients business covers a, a number of different products, including dairy. It'd be great to get an, you know, an overview from you on how the COVID-19 has impacted you guys. We talked a little bit about this before the uh, webinar started, but how are you seeing the impact on your products and, and, and movement of products around the world. Obviously, there's a lot of transport involved in what you're doing. How has that been impacted? Good morning, all of you, and uh, thanks for having here, uh, Mike. I'll start with the impact on our supply chain and probably add to what Anuj said in terms of demand that we are seeing in various products. I think in terms of supply chain, our manufacturing plants, they are across the spectrum. Most of them have been classified as essential, so we are not forced to shut down our manufacturing plants across the globe. We have been uh, getting exemptions to run the manufacturing plants, including the plant that we have in Singapore, uh, which processes cocoa. But we are having difficulties in getting labor uh, come into the plants. So while the plants could run at full capacity, it's really based on availability of uh, labor that these plants are running at you know half capacities in some countries. In terms of arrivals of commodities at the farm gate, Again, it's a mixed bag, places like Peru and Colombia. The coffee season is uh, currently going on. We are uh, seeing slowdown in arrivals from the farmers to the agents. Indonesia, the cocoa main season is starting in May. It's just April, May and June. Again, there is some kind of delay. But I think across countries, the government have been very specific in saying that, you know, agriculture, all effort should be made how we can uh, get the produce harvested and moved. It's going to be a, a huge challenge. For example, in India, the major uh, rabi season harvest is going to come soon. And the harvest mm. in India is largely dependent on migrant laborers. It's not mechanized. And now we are seeing all these migrant laborers going back to their own states because of the COVID lockdown, which is going to create a big issue to harvest these crops. And the government comes in and buys at the local markets to sort of give a support price. But if you can't harvest and get the produce to the local markets. That's going to have some impact uh, in terms of supply. So our concerns is how do we make sure that uh, during the harvest times, whether it's India or Peru or Indonesia, we can support farmers or agents in getting the produce out into our supply chain and take it on to process and move upwards. That's important to support the livelihoods of farmers. That's also very important in securing the food supply for uh, all of us. In terms of demand, Anuj mentioned certain products, we see a very strong demand, like work from home as, for example, increased consumption of coffee. So specialty coffee is in uh, demand. General coffee is in good demand. Spices, which goes into canned food products like soups in US, 
are increasing in consumption. So our factories, which manufacture dehydrated garlic and onion, are seeing some good demand. But if you take cotton as a part of fiber that we do, there is some kind of a demand restriction for uh, cotton. And it's also not easy to get shipping containers to move goods like cotton. Bulk goods we are able to manage, like uh, grains getting into Middle East, uh, whether it's grains or soya, wheat or soya. But if it's containerized cargo, that is also getting impacted in a major way. So I would say it's a mixed bag. We are doing everything possible because of our proximity to the farm gate to try and help farmers to continue the harvest. And we are trying to do everything to run all manufacturing plants, which are just producing the food products so that we could get out to our customers, who in turn get it out to the supermarket for us to consume. But we definitely will be impacted this year. That's the bottom line. Yeah, so you certainly got to learn there. I'd like to sort of touch back on um, a little bit about the technologies that you are deploying to sort of try and alleviate these problems. But just for now, Matt, your members are at the coalface in the Asia region, large food companies. It's obviously uh, having an impact on, on them. What are, what are your members saying and how is Food Industry Asia sort of uh, consulting with them and, and, and helping if there's anything you can do? So, obviously, to what Anuj and Suresh said, is there's a massive impact, particularly downstream, on some of the food processing companies as well because of those supply chain disruptions, but also because of the movement control orders and lack of uh, labor being able to operate in manufacturing uh, plants and in some places at 50% capacity. It's a problem domestically for some countries, but don't forget a lot of the food processors, they're manufacturing in countries for export. And so it has an implication for, for those other export markets as well. Like the guy said, it's different strokes for different folks. You know, it's some value chains are less impacted than others. But on the whole, if you'd have asked me this question like three or four weeks ago, it was an absolute shit show. You know, it was awful. It was absolutely, it was absolutely disaster. I think things are beginning to stabilize a little bit. And that's partly because many of the customs and ports are understanding what essential foods mean. And I'll give you an example in the Philippines. We had a case where at a district level, the animal feed wasn't considered essential. And that's only because the guy's lack of knowledge at the local district and we couldn't get shipments through. And it was kind of explained that, you know, 10,000 chickens are going to starve to death in a couple of days unless we do. It is essential. So I think that mm. process is still ongoing. It shows a lack of understanding across a lot of people who should probably know better about the food supply chain. But on the whole, things are beginning to stabilize a little bit. Obviously, there's still pockets of, of problems. I mean, it's just been interaction with government officials and trying to explain what the implications are. It's always been a question of safety first. There were some issues. Obviously, there still are massive issues around lack of PPE, even for the healthcare sector, let alone for food and ag. But I think governments have become significantly more understanding that anything across the whole food supply chain is essential infrastructure. And that's how the US determines the food supply chain. So that's what we've been working on. And let's see, right now, as I said, a few things are beginning to stabilize. Obviously, the big watch out right now is Indonesia. And there's some, some big trouble potentially in, in that market, which is going to be an extremely challenging if you think about the whole archipelago and, and how we distribute food there. Yeah, yeah, it is a real worry. I wonder, you know, looking at the Asia region, when you have countries... For example, Vietnam, who say, look, we're going to hold on to our rice for a bit. And this isn't sort of getting into downstream type products, but even as fundamental as that, and you've got countries that are saying, this is serious, we need to feed our own people. We've got a real challenge ahead of us, you know, and, and, and how do we deal with that? Are you involved in any sort of consultation around that with government organisations, Matt, or, or yeah, really I mean, sort of dealing at a, no, at no, no, a, it's, a membership level? 
No, no, no. It's obviously because upstream has an impact downstream, right? And so mm. uh, a massive impact. So the good news is that Vietnam has rescinded on that and they decided to export again back to, to the Philippines because they're a net importer of rice, right? So that was a good sign. Mm. And you saw the ASEAN leaders meeting uh, I think it was last week, actually, you know, when you're working from home, the time sort of just, there's no difference now between Mondays to Sundays. I think it was last week, right? The ASEAN ministers basically made a commitment on keeping food supply chains open and trying not to be as protectionist. The problem is in Vietnam right now, and I'm not picking on Vietnam, is that some of its stocks are dwindling a bit, right? So, and it's got to restock as well, because you're going to see some other countries hoarding and consumer behavior to hoard. That's not good. But on the whole, so far, the issues around protectionism haven't really read their head like they have done in 2010, 11, 12, or is it in 20, 2008? It's a very different situation there. Unfortunately, though, what you're seeing is in many of the wheat-producing countries, the Kazakhstans and, and others, and, and they're starting to say that we're not going to export. We don't want that. I mean, that has a massive implication as well. There is a lot of discussion around food security, but the, the definition of food security is not protectionism. We still need to maintain trade supply routes to, to be open as much as possible. And that's the next stage of engagement, and governments are doing that on a G2G basis, and obviously we are as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and as you said, with Indonesia, with the prospect of social unrest and real problems with starvation and, and potential very many deaths, having to keep the economy open and running, it's, uh, it's a real, real uh, conundrum. I'd like to, to move now just to talk a little bit about Singapore. You're all residents of Singapore and you're all, uh, all in lockdown in Singapore till the 1st of June. I believe it's been extended. Singapore's been very vociferous about its 30 by 30 program and the three pillars around control, environment, agriculture, aquaculture, and, and of course, alternative proteins. 30 by 30 is still uh, the right target. Should it be 30 by 25 or something like that? What's everyone's thoughts around that? I know there was a big big scare recently with Malaysia with the potential border shutting and, and, and the, the prospect of food not crossing the border, hoarding of even fresh vegetables that ended up being rotten and thrown out which is a concern. What, what, do, what do you guys think about the whole 30 by 30 thing? And is Singapore right to try and accelerate that? Is, is, is that the right approach? Singapore depends uh, for its food. 90% of its food or calorific requirements are imported, largely from our neighbors, but also from the world at large, South America, the United States, and so on and so forth. And the 30 by 30 has really become back into focus. And I think, as you rightly said, the aspiration is no longer that we have to wait till 2030 to achieve 30% of our calorific needs from within. In fact, a few days back, the Ministry of Environment, Water and Resources, MUVER, and the Singapore Food Agency announced a $30 million fund, a grant fund to local enterprises who can accelerate their food production. So the government is, is, is seeing what you just said. It's been proven that technology can make even a tiny little state like ours produce more through vertical farms, through recirculated aquaculture and other technologies. And I think uh, there's a clear need for that because uh, while global trade is good and we need global trade, we also need for certain countries like Singapore and Middle East to be able to produce some of their food themselves. So the government is, is looking into that. We are looking into that. The four companies that we are invested in in the region, uh, in Singapore, all are well-funded. We are working with them to see how they can accelerate their production capacities. We don't know if COVID is a two-month thing, a six-month thing, or a 24-month thing, or even longer Mm -hmm. for that matter. So we have to plan for the worst case and plan so that we can produce more ourselves because that's the most resilient food strategy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
What about the mix of the other three pillars? Are you seeing that, I mean, obviously, if you're talking about alternative proteins, you get into the, the sphere of, you know, you need ingredients crossing the border. There's potential to be over-reliance on soy protein isolate, for example. Looking at alternative technologies, alternative ingredients, seems to me to be a pretty smart strategy. Are you seeing any sort of investment opportunities in those areas, Anuj, or, or Suresh, are you seeing anything coming through the protein, anything else that is sort of increasing in production or alternative production? For our portfolio, the big impact of this plant-based protein shift uh, is seen only on one segment, edible nuts. We are not focusing so much on uh, pea protein or other types of plant protein, but we see a lot of traction for the nut segments, not just because of the shift in protein. The last five to seven years, we've been seeing significant shift towards nut consumption as a healthy food, not just as a snack, uh, right from breakfast pass to any time nut consumption. And you've seen some startups uh, in China and other parts uh, significantly growing, creating new brands and coming with daily pouch of 30 grams of nuts that you can have at any point of time. So nut butters, we see now different applications of nuts into food. They're getting more into an ingredient as compared to a traditional snack. So we are investing a lot more on our internal food innovation in working with our current large customers who are food manufacturers, ingredient players, to see how we can come up with new recipes, taking advantage of this trend in consumption of plant-based protein. That will continue to happen. And I think segments like edible nuts will uh, get significant advantage out of that. To add to what Anuj said on 30 by 30, you know, I'm also in very early stages of looking at controlled environment agriculture, but we want to bring a different perspective to see that if we could not, we are looking at outside Singapore, not in Singapore in terms of getting land. We're looking at Indonesia, looking at Malaysia, looking at India, looking at Thailand. But with a view to set this up, secure supply for Singapore. Olam is a Singapore company, majority owned Temasek, and we're in discussions with Economic Development Board and other agencies in Singapore and see how we can share expertise and Olam can supply to the Singapore market 100% of the produce that is coming through our efforts on uh, CEA. And that probably also is not, while it's not totally local production, would probably add to the security if we could... uh, uh, establish commercially successful practice on that. I was thinking just on the alternative ingredient side around the algae, and I know that Adolam is looking at alternative sort of business models and, and production models, and the plan to be installing you know, large bioreactors in Singapore. Uh, do you see algae being a, a viable alternative protein source for Singapore and the production of alternative protein products? Look, algae has been long proven that it has certain benefits, but large use of algae has been in animal feeds where it actually can be more used. In Singapore, we don't have that much need for animal feed. There's a pet food market. We have three egg farms here. We have some fish farms here. So I'd say uh, algae for animal feed is definitely a very viable option. For human food, it's probably some time away, but we continue to look at it and we have invested uh, through our foundation or given grants to an algae-based company here in Singapore called Sophie's Kitchen, who are running a large uh, size bioreactor or planning to have a bioreactor here in Singapore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we've seen a few that are, that are focusing on the human food uh, market, but um, it'll be interesting to see how it all pans out. Sorry, sorry, Suresh, I interrupted you. 
No, I think we should understand the shift in uh, trends towards plant-based protein is not to give alternative sources of protein to vegan or vegetarian people. It's basically, you know, coming out of the concerns people have on environment and the whole issue of sustainability. I have, you know, producing meat and uh, uh, enormous amounts of water and land that goes into producing meat. And so the plant-based protein coming into play as a segment that can, you know, show us a path like insects, uh, cricket crisps and all that, which is now getting popular, that you can get more protein, saving more land and water. So there should be an underlying trend of uh, consumers evolving on that maturity cycle and moving towards that. Because not all of these are going to be tasty. Like I tried pea protein powder from the US. It's not great as you would have a, a typical whey protein, right? It's not very really tasty. It's very sandy in terms of texture. Yeah. So you have to first increase the maturity of consumers. For example, Bolam is now trying to work on a carbon footprinting app for uh, Singapore. We want to launch in Singapore, B2B and B2C first, where we want to give every Singapore resident living here a tool to measure the carbon footprint based on the food consumption, their travel habits, the type of homes they live in, and not just measure, but also provide offsetting mechanisms in Singapore and in our global operations. You know, you could even provide an option to plant a tree in Singapore working with national parks, or you could do something on Olam's orchards and plantation overall. Doing things like this would you know, probably help in uh, accelerating the, the shifting patterns into alternate uh, proteins. It's not just a fad in the sense this maturity has to happen to support that uh, consumption. Very good. Your members, are any of them looking at alternative products for the Singapore market, for example, or, or other markets in Asia, utilizing, you know, the offtake from those, those, those three cores that, that Singapore is looking at. I know Singapore is more likely to be an exporter of technology rather than products, but the integration of new, new ingredients, new supply chains, some new products. Is, is, that, is that a real focus for your members? Yeah, it is. Yeah, of course. Uh, Givadon, Ferminich, you know, and even Nestle partnership that they have with the company, the startup company that was mentioned earlier by Anoush. So they're all looking at those viable uh, alternatives, but um, on the plant-based on trend. I'd be just be curious to see what that means uh, post-COVID as well, to be honest. I don't think it changes the fundamentals. I think there's still going to be a big trend on plant-based, but some of the research that we're seeing out of China and some other markets as well is that the consumers looking at because of the, the lack of availability and access to some of the plant-based, uh, as well as just meat, basically, uh, there was a bigger focus on fruit and vegetable consumption and whole foods, and, and really that's part of the core balanced diet, right? So, be, and, and also immunity boosting. I think Anoush said it as well. We don't know how long COVID is with us, right? It may be with us permanently for, for you know, it's with us forever, right? And, and, and whether we get a vaccine within a year or two years or maybe never, I don't know. So what does that mean for people's preferences and diets and, and, and what they look at? There's, there's going to be some changes, I think, but we don't know yet whether that's short-term or if it's medium-term or it's long-term and quite what those implications are. But just, just on a final note, on Singapore's 30-30, yeah, obviously right now it's been accelerated a bit and government officials are looking at that, but I don't think it changes the Singapore government's diversification strategy on trade deals and, and its imports from 140 companies. It still has to do that because even if you were to be 50% of the population, you know, with 
the domestic produce, there's still another 50% to make up for it. still going to be a major importer. It will be that focus on exporting its technology. And this is where Singapore is going to be very, very strong in the plant-based arena. And already, for those people who are familiar, how ASTAR and the universities are, are partnering with organizations and even property companies like Capital Land, uh, who is 51% owned by Temasek, they're, they're looking at how they can be supportive of the whole um, agri-food system and creating innovation hubs within its within its its properties as well. Totally agree with that. And just to, just on that whole food as medicine thing, I mean that's the key thing that's emerging, and we've seen that as a result of COVID that people with weakened immune systems, if they have underlying health problems or perhaps are obese, are given that the you know Asia Asia in generally sort of recognised as having a, a fairly um, poor diet. What technologies are you guys seeing that you think are going to be real potential to, to help with that, that sort of food as medicine, whether they're functional ingredients or whether they're new new types of products or, or new types of alternative proteins. What are you guys seeing that's, that's sort of exciting you at the moment that, that you think is interesting and could have an impact? I think uh, nutrition, as Matt mentioned, is a very important part of the fight against COVID. And I think governments have to think about it a little differently. So, of course, the food requirements, the calorific value is important. And, and we need to secure that. Each country needs to secure that. But depending on how long uh, this, this fight is going to continue, we need to focus on making sure that you know, people stay healthy and they have the right amount of nutrition, whether it's vitamin A, B, C, you know, other essential amino acids and so on and so forth. You know, mm-hmm. We were very used to having diets which were vast and we could have berries from Mexico and avocados from Australia and so on and so forth. That might or might not be the case. So I think this whole field of nutraceuticals is going to see, in my opinion, a big boost. We're already seeing in supermarkets, you know, nutraceuticals have all been, been taken up. Manufacturers are not able to keep up with multivitamins and so on and so forth. I think people are going to do that. They're going to take more of these supplements. I'm quite interested in how this develops. So that's certainly one area that comes back into focus, probably a little bit more. The second area is these digital platforms. For a long time, we have talked about digital platforms. I know Lam's doing quite a lot of work on digital. You know, for the last 10 years, we know that the better way of doing things should be rather than the middlemen could be through digital platforms to connect the buyer and the seller, for, especially in rural supply chains and, and smallholder supply chains. That never really took off because inherently the switching costs were very high. Nobody really yeah. wanted it to happen. There was this flow of credit and so on and so forth. That has changed overnight with COVID. We are seeing that happen. For example, in India, one of our uh, platforms that we have backed called Agri Bazaar, it saw a 10x increase in its monthly turnover or sales transaction yeah. through flow, yeah, throughput in the month of March and in the month of April. In the first three weeks, they have already met their budget for the entire year, which was double of last year. So that's wow. because the government of India is buying products from their platform, so the, uh, the Food Corporation of India. And on the other hand, when the Food Corporation of India has to give the raw, raw grain, raw rice, raw wheat for milling, they're selling it through the platform as well. So that overnight switch where people created accounts and so on and so forth have happened. Now the question is, you know, Will these people go back to the Mondays and the traders that they were so used to working with? So I'm very fascinated by this digital 
move that's happening. Any, any company that is in that space today should really accelerate what they're doing. They should be in the market even if they don't have their app ready, even if they don't have everything ready because the buyer and the seller world has to be connected and this is a longer fight than most people think. I believe COVID is here for, for many, many years. So those are the two things that come back into focus from our perspective. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. Markets like India, you know, we have a, we have a portfolio company called Zahat that is rationalizing the supply chain. And again, they're, they're bringing on armor customers, hand over fist. I just can't keep up. But I know, Suresh, that um, uh, your own primary information system is, has been success for you guys. Can you talk a little bit about how that has helped with, with the current situation? Yeah, so I completely agree with what Anuj said. I think COVID just emphasized the need to accelerate adapting the digital solutions to FarmGate. Solem has been digitizing supply chain for the last four years. Our simple role is first mile, last mile with our farmers and customers. Whatever we do, we want to engage with them digitally. Whether it's a portal, it's an app, doesn't matter. We need to do that. And on top of that, transform the supply chain. Transform the supply chain in a way that brings in trust, transparency, reliability, traceability, and eliminates middlemen, passes more value to the farmers, and secures supplies to the customers. So we have a plethora of solutions working on the supply chain. Today, approximately 2 million farmers are interacting on these platforms. For example, even during COVID, we have used these digital tools to broadcast messages right from giving simple advices of how to keep yourself clean, take precautions about hygiene conditions, to government notifications on COVID lockdowns in different countries. Our digital tools come in very handy to broadcast messages. But what we are very keen is to make the farmers come onto the platform to supply, Olam being the uh, off-take company, and supply this to our uh, customers. But we want to provide a holistic solution to the farmer, which is intuitive to the farmer that follows the farmer through the entire life cycle. There are a lot of ag tech startups today trying to address a part of the problem in the supply chain. But what is missing in Olam's opinion is a holistic app that can provide end-to-end solution to the farmer right from the day the farmer thinks of planting a crop in helping him to decide what crop to plant, to prepare the soil, to buy the seeds, getting credit for the inputs, to monitoring the crop till the day of harvest and providing the best market prices. And that is something what we call as a farmer service platform that we want to eventually get into. Agnostic to what today Walam is buying, we could open up to any commodity that uh, we want to get the farmers on board. We are currently uh, doing trials in India and Indonesia And this will uh, use a lot of sophisticated technology like uh, natural language processing, uh, machine learning algorithms at the back end, satellite imagery that will provide a personalized advice. Even if it is just one hectare of farm a farmer owns, uh, narrowing onto a specific portion of that one hectare, it could give a specific advice in the morning that this patch looks right and you go and inspect. So that level of customization is today possible with the help of technology. And companies like Olam have the advantage of being in the supply chain of agri-commodities so that we could provide offtake. So the farmer doesn't have to go to one app for buying inputs, another app for selling the produce, another app for getting weather information, another app for getting, say, advice on crop diseases and pests. If it's holistic, I think that's a very winning combination. 
And given our presence in Asia, Africa, South and Central America, we believe that four or five countries have got very strong potential to launch this. And today, the four or five solutions that we have provide this multitude of services. We are trying to combine them into one platform. And COVID is a reminder that the smallholder farming landscape has to change dramatically where we use technology to minimize interface, to bring in efficiency, to reduce wastage, more importantly, bring price transparency to the farmer and secure the supply chains. And uh, I think the realization will dawn on people and there'll be much more concerted effort in uh, increasing the pace of digitizing the first mile solutions. As long as that digitalization and automation, as long as that goes towards really solving this massive problem of food loss and waste that we've had. I know we're, you know, to me right now, the issues that we have in agriculture in Asia around um, the losses at the farm gate, but also in handling and storage, I really hope that governments can really double down on looking at how we can, and private sector for that matter, and how we can look at solutions around food loss and waste. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the stories that you see in the New York Times about downstream, you know, dairy farmers dumping milk, and that's just a reflection of just a massive change in demand, right? Just stopped, you know, boom, the whole food yeah. service sector. But at least it's, it's kind of, I hope that it's kind of going to put more of a spotlight on solving some of those issues around food loss and waste. Because we've heard this message for years and years and years now, like, oh, we need to grow more food, do we? I mean, I, I mean, look at the losses that we have across the supply chain. And that, for me, is, is going to be a fundamental push from, from FI and our members on, on trying to work with governments. Like, even though the, a lot of our companies are brands and downstream, and a lot of their, their efficiencies in manufacturing are, are pretty strong. But looking upstream, how we solve that is going to be huge. I hope that COVID's really puts a spotlight on us looking at how some of that automation and digitalization can go towards um, uh, reducing food loss and waste. You know, I totally agree. But is that, is that sort of realistic that we're going to be able to have some form of digitization that is able to give us virtual real-time consumption data that will allow us to redirect products at production phase off to other markets? I'm just struggling to see how we're going to get to that point. We need, as you say, you know, government to be, to be involved. We need the private sector. It seems like a very big, big job to do. You've gone all out there and just said that. I mean, yeah, you're right. That's a tough one. But there are certainly <laughs> a lot of, there are certainly a, a number of relatively small interventions that can already happen around farm gate and, and in handling and storage that can reduce food loss. I'm not talking about coming up with the, the one technology that's going to solve all the crisis. Absolutely not. You know? So within that food security debate is looking at food loss and waste, health and nutrition and food safety and ensuring those foods are safe. Probably in this conversation, we're talking a lot about um, middle class and and up, right? But what about those people at the bottom of the pyramid? You know, or not even at the bottom of the pyramid, but then we'll sink in towards that bottom of the pyramid because of the economic impact of COVID as well. That fresh produce, you know, that's being wasted. You say, we've got to look at solutions around that now. Don't know what those are. We're going to start working on this and do this with some partners um, just to see how, and, and that's NGOs as well, what we can look at. I don't think we're going to say there's a silver bullet that's going to solve all of this. Absolutely not. There needs to be a greater attention on it now. Not just COVID, Michael. I think even before COVID, I think you'd very well appreciate smallholder farming uh, dangerously close to coming down dramatically because it's not attractive for the farmers and younger generation is not keen to continue. And uh, the mm. shift was happening in terms of farmers shifting to urban uh, communities. And whether COVID or not, if there is a shift where smallholder farmers move out of farming, then we have a fundamental challenge of getting you know, a plate of rice or a slice of bread on our tables. But even before this digital, the technology intervention and permeation was extremely crucial to make sure that we can increase the value for the smallholder farmer, retain them in farming, which is 
very important for food security, for eliminating poverty, as well as uh, acting as a good economic engine of growth for uh, these countries in Asia and Africa, which are dependent on agriculture. Well, what about automation? I mean, we've, we've got a really strong automation thesis around farm production and, and right across the supply chain, actually. I know Tamasic have also made, made investments in, in robotics. Uh, do you guys see automation, particularly, we know that in the more developed countries, there's greater applicability because you've got greater margins. Is there room for automation in, in Asia, the way that we're currently set up? Do you see that being a, a viable prospect anytime soon? The answer is yes. Uh, yes. The question always has been, you know, all of these trends are slowly being adapted. You know, tractor mm-hmm. penetration is increasing. That's automation too. But, you know, post, if there is something called a post-COVID world or in the COVID world, as we grapple with this, uh, this disease, I think there is no option, but we will have to use more machines to do things because people okay. just cannot be doing as much of it. And food is essential. So I'm yet to see any ideas which are game-changing in Asia other than what we are seeing is a, is a drone revolution in China. In China, as most of you know, there is a massive use of drones in, uh, in agriculture. The government subsidizes the purchase of drones by farms. Uh, there are companies like XAG and others which have come up with drones which are being using a lot of AI to be able to spot weeds and other, other pest problems. I have always uh, believed and said that drones are definitely going to be used more uh, generously in smallholder farms. We don't have the need of combines and other things. So that's going to take off. And then when it comes to you know, the different parts of the value chain, you know, maybe Matt can talk more about it. But even on the downstream side, you know, we're going to see more and more of automation because food is inherently a very labor-consuming job, whether it is kitchens, whether it is serving, whether it is vending machines. So we think automation will, will hopefully have a different kind of trajectory going forward as we emerge from these lockdowns. Yeah, I think further downstream, look, it's a no-brainer. If you look at the situation in some of the markets with the movement control orders, right, and where mm-hmm. manufacturing was reduced to 50% capacity, and if you were obviously relying on a lot of labor to do that, then you're in trouble, right? You can't run your plant. It's a no-brainer that the organizations and companies, food manufacturers in particular, are going to have those conversations about how much they can automate downstream. It's probably accelerated the conversation, partly because in certain markets, labor was so cheap, right? And so they'll be saying, look, in the event of mitigating something like this happening again, to what extent and how much can we automate? It's just that conversation right now with governments would be quite sensitive. You're looking at countries who are going to go through major recessions and high unemployment. So what does that mean as well? And how, what does that mean for a transition? And that's probably mm-hmm. just the, the sensitivity around it now. But it's an absolute no-brainer to look at that further automation. And in particular, what it also means within ASEAN as well. I know we talked, uh, I know you mentioned about China. A lot of food production is already local anyway, certainly downstream. But, but to what extent does that, you know, sourcing and everything else change because they're so reliant on China? And what does that mean for ASEAN as well? And does that bring further investment into ASEAN? Does it it stimulate more intra-ASEAN trade? Is that the opportunity then to try and accelerate a bit more with this technology adoption? Because Anush said it correctly as well. You know, tractors are technology. It sounds, you know, it sounds quite old technology, but it's really important, fundamental to many markets out here in in ASEAN. So how do we accelerate that? And I think these would be some questions that will be asked as we evaluate the impact of COVID on, on the food and agri-supply chains over the next few months, year, I see. 
one question that we have to sort of tie in with that, and I was just going to talk about uh, sustainability as well. We've had a bunch of questions around sustainability, so I thought I'd just ask one of those. And basically we're being asked is, and this is addressed to you as an investor, given that everything that's gone on, do you see sustainability is out the window now? Are we just looking as investors at capital appreciation or is sustainability still a key component of, of, of how we should be investing? Look, for us, sustainability is at the core of almost everything we do from an investment perspective. And we don't see a divergence from the trends that are happening right now with sustainability. In fact, the, the overlap is huge. I think the sustainability debate and the sustainability action would probably be expanded. In certain places, it might not be because food security comes a little bit ahead of that when we are in a crisis. But you know, what were the kind of technologies that we were investing from a sustainability perspective were alternate ways of, of producing protein you know, that's still very much relevant in the current world. We were looking at automation. We were looking at other ways of doing crop inputs, more biological ways. So I think all of those debates are still very much alive. Today, we are fighting a pandemic. We will fight this pandemic on multiple fronts. Today, it's a healthcare front and an economic front. I hope it's not on the food front. The supply chains can continue to operate as they are. I'm not sure that will happen because the, the effects on agriculture and food will be felt in three months, six months, and 12 months down the line. But that acceleration for modernization, which is what sustainability was, will continue to to happen. And I hope it accelerates. And it should not delay any focus on sustainability. So I think there was a letter signed by a few hundred CEOs, cross-sectoral CEOs in Europe, just saying in the situation where Europe, that this is the opportunity to transition more to a circular economy and green economy and, and more, be more sustainable. One area that's concerned for me is single-use plastics. There is a surge in the use of single-use plastics, right? Public health concerns around around touching things and, and using those single-use. And even we've seen some trends in China and a few markets in Southeast Asia where people are buying more packs and, and more packaging because they, cause, cause they feel safer with that. But that's a problem, right? We don't want to increase the use of single-use plastics, okay? And, and yeah. that should never be used as an opportunity for some sectors to say, look, yeah, it should be here to stay. Absolutely not. So, um, I mean, from our perspective, even though we're FI and we don't produce a product, but this will be the first time you hear it from me that we're asking for regulation on this. We're asking for regulation on food contact materials. That means across all the markets to allow more food packaging to be chemically processed or whatever that process is to try and get that back into, into the supply chain to reduce the amount. So it's recycling it because what we don't have is regulations on this and it just gets dumped. You know, and you imagine the amount of single-use plastics are being used through uh, delivery and everything else. So no, in fact, actually it reinforces our approach and hopefully the companies that we represent, they continue on that path on and particularly looking on reducing single-use plastic and investing in PROs and in recycling projects across the whole region. So that's, that's what our focus is as well for the rest of the year and on ongoing. As an industry leader in sustainability, we believe that nothing is going to change. Probably only the importance of this will increase. Sort of, I think people have got sort of a wake-up call because of this crisis. And you would have seen this lot of satellite imagery showing pre-COVID and during COVID, how the error on uh, most polluted cities have cleared up. I think this is going to get more traction if people uh, in prospect think back that for Mother Nature, this is a small event, but the impact that it has had as to force us to think new ways of working on. So industries and different commodities in agriculture, it will have a different ramification, but it's in no way going to take the eye of the ball for OLAM or our customers in pursuing our journey to uh, provide sustainable produce. As all of you would know, at source uh, platform that we have launched, breakthrough platform that provides a 
total sustainability solutions along with the physical commodities, almost 140 customers on board. And every day we're seeing more and more customers coming on board to sign up to a, a produce that comes from this platform. So if at all uh, there is any change, it's going to be positive towards sustainability. Fantastic. It's, it's really encouraging from, from all of you. Moving on with the questions, there's been a global reaction to the shocks and stresses that are stemming from the global pandemic. I'm curious if OLAM, Tomastic and FIA have completed resilience assessments to determine pathways for managing the shocks and stresses delivered by the pandemic, presumably. So was that a question on business impact? I think so, pathways to managing. So yeah, business impact, perhaps yeah. country impact as well. It's impossible to say that you will not be impacted and no company in any industry would say that. So we are thankful that uh, all our manufacturing operations are classified as essential and uh, fortunate that agri sector is a sector that all governments want to prioritize to make sure the supply chain continues for food security and for the livelihood of farmers in ways even during this crisis. Having said that, we see low arrivals in some countries. We see our manufacturing factories running at full capacity as Matt alluded to getting workforce is not uh, easy in many countries, but we hope that it will not be substantial. So uh, there is an impact to our operations, but we trying, as I said, using our digital platforms to continue the flow of news from the farmers and uh, get it into our manufacturing operations and to our customers. Obviously, FIA is not going to look at all our members' value chains. It's impossible for us to do that. I mean, I'd love to, but, but what we will do, we're going to work with a consultancy, actually, to do some regular monitoring now of what the, the actual impact has been on, on supply chains, particularly on upstream, but also downstream or food processes as well, and looking at the economic, the social, and the environmental impact, both negatively and positively. So this is something that we're going to invest in our time over the next three to six months and obviously the situation keeps changing so um, and, and so that we can analyze that from a little bit more of a macro level because like I said we can't we can't delve down into all the individual value chains of our members to, to look at the actual detailed business impact but at least we can do it at a macro level. The resilience assessment is a tough assessment to do because we don't know resiliency against what. We don't mm. know what we're fighting. We don't mm. know how long we're fighting for. We don't know what's the we know the first round we don't know the second round, the third round, the fourth round. So it's, it's a great question, first of all. And I think this is what keeps me worried is the resiliency of the supply chain. Because if the supply chain is not resilient, the poorest of the poor, the countries in need will face problems with high unemployment, which is likely to ensue after these lockdowns, you know, affordability will go down. So we don't know. We can look at what has happened historically. We saw what happened in between 2000 and 2011. I think by and large, we were able to keep a resilient supply chain. However, the prices moved down significantly, then increased, uh, then went up significantly. Those are things that we uh, are avoidable in an interconnected global supply chain because nobody likes food prices to go up significantly. Food is a big part of the inflation indexes of countries. It affects everybody. So the resiliency is not just in terms of the volume, it's also in terms of the stability of price, which no one participant determines. It's not the, the big companies or the big food companies determine the price. It's really an interconnected value chain between farmers, producers, governments, and so on and so forth. What we know for sure is that the more the shock into the system, the more difficult it is going to be. So I think most people in our, uh, I know, 
our strong strategic relationships, the big companies, our portfolio companies are all working very hard to make sure that the resiliency is preserved. We've not had food shock, hunger, and so on and so forth are by and large on the declining trajectory if you look at globally. But this pandemic will probably create some issues in that trajectory going forward. So, Thanks, thanks, Suresh. Cut another question. Given the COVID situation, will Tomastic increase its investment in food tech or would it now focus on more traditional food manufacturers who are producing current food needs? We are going to continue to focus on what we were doing. The food tech was a very important part of our investment philosophy, new ways of doing things. But, you know, Tomastic was always investing in the traditional industry very much. One of our most successful investments in the last five years has been an animal vaccine company, a company that uh, produces uh, vaccines for poultry and swine and so on and so forth. Those are the kind of companies which are needed even more today. So we continue to provide that to the traditional industries. And of course, good ideas on the act tech and the food tech side, we're always open to listening to that. So if anybody has those, please, please feel free to reach out to us. I highlighted new areas like nutraceuticals and digital platforms, which become increasingly more important going forward. Okay, thanks, thanks, Anuj. Next question, which ASEAN countries are most at risk from supply chain disruption from COVID in the short to medium term? Indonesia. Indonesia. Indonesia, and I think I would call out to watch for the Indian harvest season coming now. Uh, mm-hmm. Very, very large. And yeah. 40 million farmers. Okay. Next question to all. What do you think if we go into a food crisis and famine, if this COVID lasts for more than one year, how would Singapore cope with this scenario? That's a question for uh, the Singapore Food Agency. But Singapore does have strong government. It's already taking steps to diversify food supply, various sources. So yes, we all are at risk if food uh, shortages come in. But uh, Singapore has a proactive government. And from what I'm seeing, they are taking steps to make sure that the resiliency of the supply chain is maintained in Singapore. Of course, one of the prongs for that is to develop the local industry faster. And as we discussed, the 30 by 30 goal. So SFA has already taken this uh, step very quickly to create this 30 by 30 express grant. And they have been very fast with even giving this grant to a lot of Mm -hmm. companies in Singapore. So they're proactive, they're providing this funding so that the companies can actually focus on doing their job, not so much on raising capital because that's impossible to do in the current environment. It is indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the Singapore government's had a very long diversification strategy of exactly where it gets its food from. I sort of read more than 100 countries, 150 countries, whatever it is. Politically, they understood the implications of that a long time ago and so they're prepared. But it's a bit of an apocalyptic question, really, isn't it? So you don't, you don't really know. But I think Singapore's in a, in a position where um, it's prepared. Yeah, great. Well, thank you. Well, we're almost out of time. I think we just get cut off at an hour. I'm not sure. But I'd really like to thank you all for joining the, uh, the call and, and obviously to thank the panelists for, for their time. Uh, great insights. Really appreciate your participation, guys. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Michael. Anush Suresh, great. Thanks. You've been listening to Future Food with me, Louisa Burwood-Taylor. For news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.